This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number 17, Steroids and Shock. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host. Never afraid to bring the jibber-jabber. It's Shailen Jassani. Hello and welcome to the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. It's a great pleasure to know that you are listening once again. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the use of steroids in shock and whether you should or should not be doing this ever. Today's episode was inspired by a Facebook post that was made by Charlotte Rosenthal from Arizona. Charlotte will be sitting the VTS ECC exam in September, and she left a post asking for an episode on steroid use in sepsis and shock in general. So thanks very much, Charlotte, for that cool idea for a podcast topic. I guess one thing I should say from the outset is that I'm going to be using the term steroids in this episode to refer to synthetic drugs that we may administer to patients that have glucocorticoid and to a variable extent mineralocorticoid effects. So this includes hydrocortisone, dexamethasone, betamethasone, methylprednisolone, etc. And out of necessity, I'm lumping all of them into the same category for today, although as you'll see later, um, hydrocortisone definitely features quite heavily. The other thing is to remind you that of course there are different types of shock and more than one type can be present in the same patient. So shock essentially is the state that a patient reaches when their systemic tissue oxygen delivery falls to a critically low level. And the most common reason for this is poor systemic blood flow And the four types of shock which result in this hypoperfusion are hypovolemic, distributive, cardiogenic, and obstructive. Some people use slightly different classification systems, especially listing septic shock and uh, potentially anaphylactic shock as separate entities. But I think this uh, four system classification is probably the most widely uh, reported. So the thing is, if you look at some older resources and drug formularies, you will find that shock is listed as an indication for at least some of the steroids. And for example, I remember back in the day seeing a dose of dexamethasone uh, for shock being listed as one milligram per kilogram. I'm sure we have all met practitioners who always want to administer steroids to patients in shock, and indeed some people swear by it. And then, of course, that old adage that no animals should ever die without steroids probably does not help in this regard. Out of interest, I did a quick recce of some recent editions of formularies that I have, and things do seem to have changed in recent times. So, for example, in the online version of Plum's Veterinary Drugs, if you look under dexamethasone, it now says... High-dose fast-acting corticosteroids are no longer recommended for use in shock. Recent studies have not demonstrated significant benefit and it actually may cause increased deleterious effects. The other thing it says there, which actually did make me chuckle, uh, 
was it says glucocorticoids have been used in an attempt to treat practically every malady that afflicts man or animal. What I want to do for today's episode is to review some of the literature around the use of steroids in shock and most importantly to discuss whether there are any patients that you might consider giving steroids to and if so at what sort of dose. Remember I'm not referring here to patients in which there is a specific indication for you to use either anti-inflammatory or indeed immunosuppressive steroids but rather I'm talking about the situation where if you are faced with a patient in shock or indeed we can widen it out to a patient that is critically ill then might steroids help. And I should also say that I'm not going to discuss the use of steroids in central nervous system trauma in this episode either. Most people's current recommendation based on available published evidence is that you do not use steroids for patients with CNS trauma on the basis of risk with no proven benefit. But there is more to say about that and I realise that it's also still among some people a uh, contentious and controversial topic and I will come back to that in a future episode. Okay so I spent quite some time searching the literature and I was actually unable to find any good recent reviews discussing the use of steroids in shock in general. That perhaps is not surprising but the vast majority of the literature that I did find is on the use of steroids in septic shock in people either clinical studies or review articles where they cite experimental animal studies and clinical human trials. So what follows in this episode is really going to be a bit of an experimental clinical cross-species mishmash, which in many ways is not ideal from an evidence-based point of view, but it is the best that I could find to put together uh, to come up with this episode. Whether or not steroids should be used in shock has been an ongoing debate for many years. If you search the literature, you will find papers with titles such as Role of Corticosteroids in the Treatment of Circulatory Collapse States, and that's from Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics in 1970, before even I was born. Or another paper is entitled Should Corticosteroids Be Used in Shock? Question mark from Medical Clinics of North America in 1973. And then there was also Steroids and Severe Hemorrhagic Shock from Surgery in 1977. I wasn't able to access most of these older papers online given how old they are. You, I'm sure, will know, those of you that have access to any of the journals, that um, many have gone back and uploaded and put online, um, you know, older issues and additions of the journals that predated the time that they went uh, electronic and became available online but certainly not not all journals have gone back and uploaded absolutely everything and so often we can't access older um, papers online one paper that i could access um, is called should corticosteroids be given in shock and it is from the Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin in 1976, Volume 14, Issue 4. I say a paper, it's not really that lengthy a a document. I'm not sure if it counts as a paper or a commentary or an editorial or something like that. But nonetheless, in this, let's call it a paper, the authors say, the adrenals respond to shock by increased cortisol secretion. 
Any beneficial effect of corticosteroids is therefore not due to the correction of adrenal insufficiency. And so what they're saying there is, well, because you're producing more cortisol in response to shock, then giving more steroids doesn't help. Now, um, I'm going to come back and talk later on in the podcast at some length about the concept of relative adrenal insufficiency or what was more recently renamed as critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. So I don't think their statement there is is um, all it's cracked up to be. But the authors also say, the effects of corticosteroids in shock are difficult to study because of the variety of causes and the lack of animal models which mimic the conditions found in man. They discuss briefly some of the potential ways in which steroids could be beneficial in shock, referring to references that were available at the time, and I remind you that um, I'm presenting you here information from 1976. Ultimately, the authors go on to say, there is insufficient evidence to support the use of corticosteroids in traumatic, hemorrhagic, neurogenic, or cardiogenic shock. In patients with endotoxin shock, it seems reasonable to give a glucocorticoid if there has been no improvement in response to adequate fluid replacement and ventilation together with an appropriate antibiotic regime. Endotoxemia is the only form of shock in which corticosteroids may be helpful. Very large doses are needed. An adequate prospective trial of this therapy is, however, badly needed. So what they're referring to there is basically uh, severe sepsis and septic shock, and I will discuss that in a lot more detail later. And it'll be interesting for you to see how things have changed in the preceding, uh, in the interim uh, 30, 40 years or so. I did find it interesting, though, that this was written in a paper from 1976, and they used references from the 1950s, 1960s, and early 1970s. If you're anything like me, you're guilty of thinking some of the things that we talk about nowadays, you know, are very recent concepts and have been uncovered in the last few years. Um... And I think reading a paper like this does give some validity to people that say that things tend to cycle and ideas that have been considered, you know, in decades gone by reemerge later on and, and so on. I did also come across a couple of uh, animal experimental studies uh, where methylprednisolone was given to animals um, in which hemorrhagic shock had been induced. But even more than normal, these particular studies look to me to be of no value from an evidence-based point of view that's translatable to anything that we do clinically. So what I want to do now is to move on and spend the rest of the podcast focusing on talking more specifically about septic shock. As I mentioned, if you do searches in PubMed, Google Scholar, and so on, for variations of steroids and shock, then far and away the most common search results relate to steroids and septic shock. So just to remind you what the term septic shock refers to, now keep in mind that depending where you look, you will potentially find slightly differing definitions of the following terms. But nevertheless, so sepsis is essentially systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS that is due to a confirmed or suspected infectious cause. A couple of you have previously requested a podcast on SIRS and sepsis, and I have that on my radar for something to cover in the not-too-distant future, I hope. So that's sepsis. You then have severe sepsis, 
which refers to sepsis in which there is evidence of organ dysfunction. And this organ dysfunction may also include hypotension or tissue hypoperfusion, which is essentially seen as being dysfunction of the cardiovascular system. And then the final stage is septic shock, which is defined as sepsis-induced hypotension or tissue hypoperfusion, which persists despite adequate fluid resuscitation. So sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. And actually, it's important when you look at the literature or other resources to keep these definitions and distinctions in mind, because from an evidence-based point of view, what may be valid in a patient that just has sepsis, and I put the just in air quotes, what may be valid in a patient with just sepsis may not be valid in one that has septic shock and vice versa. As I always say, it's about asking whether the information you are consuming relates to the patient you are treating. Also remember that in patients with sepsis-induced hypotension or tissue hypoperfusion, what we are seeing there is distributive shock with generalized vasodilation, which basically increases the capacity of the intravascular space and causes a relative hypovolemia. But these patients are also likely to have a degree of absolute hypovolemia with fluid being lost from the circulation through those leaky inflamed blood vessels. And indeed, they may also have some degree of myocardial dysfunction and the cells may also have impaired ability to take up and utilize the oxygen that they actually do receive. So the proposed pathophysiology of sepsis is complex and definitely well beyond the scope of this podcast episode. In the human literature, you can find experimental and indeed clinical papers from as far back as the 1940s. Now, these are not necessarily always about septic shock, but for example, they may consider whether there is a role for steroids in patient with infection that maybe has not yet caused them to be septic. And remember, we said before that sepsis is SIRS that is secondary to a confirmed or highly suspected infectious cause. So one such paper um, is from the Journal of Clinical Investigation in 1951, and it's entitled The Effect of Cortisone on Acute Streptococcal Infections and Post-Streptococcal Complications. This paper is actually freely available online, and I will include the reference and the link for anyone who fancies delving back into the human medicine archives. It is actually quite fascinating reading these old papers, I have to say. And then I also want to remind you about the conclusion of that 1976 Drugs and Therapeutics Bulletin that I mentioned earlier, where they said that endotoxemia is the only form of shock in which corticosteroids may be helpful. They also suggested that you needed to use a very large dose, and they also said that an adequate prospective trial of this therapy is, however, badly needed. So if we then fast forward nearly 40 years to 2015, Clearly, there has been a lot of work uh, published looking at the use of steroids in septic shock. And some of this has been non-human and human experimental work. But there has also been clinical literature, including prospective randomized trials. Most of this information relates to human adults, but there is also some pediatric literature. Before I talk a little bit about what the current conclusions of that literature seem to be, Let's just take a moment to consider 
what potential rationale there could be for using corticosteroids in septic shock or what people that do this might be hoping to achieve. Well, the first thing is that, as I said earlier, by definition, patients with septic shock have systemic inflammation. And there is suggestion that in the battle that rages between pro and anti-inflammatory pathways, by the time a patient is in septic shock, their pro-inflammatory pathways have basically won that endogenous battle and overwhelmed their endogenous glucocorticoids. So maybe supplementing steroids is a good thing. And I will come back to that later when I talk about relative adrenal insufficiency or critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. And then there are also various suggested molecular and cellular pathophysiological mechanisms by which glucocorticoids may help to augment the compensatory anti-inflammatory response. Beyond that, there is also the suggestion that through various mechanisms, and often these are ones that are not definitively proven, steroids in a patient with septic shock can help to restore both cardiovascular system dysfunction but also organ dysfunction in other sites. And as I say, this is not something that I think has been well evidenced but is certainly suggestions. So those are some of the good things that steroids might do in septic shock, the potential benefits if you like. And I guess I really must stress the words here, might and potential. And so then what about the risks? As I always remind you about the risk-benefit analysis, assessment, profile, whatever you want to call it. So what about the potential risks? Well, clearly one of the most obvious ones is we know that steroids can be immunosuppressive. And there is the concern that by giving steroids to septic patients, you could further hinder their ability to fight off not just the infection or infections that have caused the sepsis in the first place, but you could also potentially predispose them to new infections or so-called super infections. And of course, new onset hospital-acquired infections can be amongst the most destructive and resistant infections. So it's really the last thing that a patient in that situation needs. And then, of course, with steroid use, there are also concerns about causing gastrointestinal ulceration and bleeding, about worsening muscle weakness that the critically ill patient might develop, and so on. So it looks like what we are saying is that when a patient gets an infection, and especially if this triggers systemic inflammation, their endogenous glucocorticoids have a role to play in dampening down the severity of this inflammation and its systemic consequences. And indeed, we know that glucocorticoids, cortisol in particular, has many effects in many systems in the body that are essential to maintaining homeostasis. So with that in mind, I think this leads to two different questions. The first is, well, if we are saying that steroids can theoretically play a beneficial role in septic patients, and in particular septic shock, then should the aim be to give all septic patients steroids? on the basis that if some is helpful, more is even better? Or put another way, is there a rationale for supraphysiological steroid use? The second question is that if using steroids in this supraphysiological way does not make sense or is not supported by evidence, then is there a role for physiological steroid use? What do I mean by this? Well, what I mean is that as these patients progress through sepsis, severe sepsis, and intersepsis shock, 
they will be consuming vast amounts of their endogenous glucocorticoids and maybe in the end they actually reach a state where they essentially have a steroid deficiency. In other words, some of what we are seeing clinically is because the patient no longer has enough endogenous steroids to meet their physiological needs. In these patients, administering exogenous steroids is not about more is better, but rather it is about trying to help to maintain the required physiological amount. So the summary of where things are in terms of steroid use in sepsis in both human and in veterinary patients it is that it's not recommended to use steroids in all these patients. It is recommended to use steroids if the patient is known to have a specific infection for which steroids are indicated. And then there is ongoing debate about the use of steroids in patients with criteria that may suggest that they need to have their endogenous steroids topped up to meet their physiological demand. Or in other words, if you suspect that they might have so-called relative adrenal insufficiency or critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. Many of you, I'm sure, will be aware of the Human Surviving Sepsis Guidelines published first in 2004 and then in 2008 and most recently in 2012. So the third edition of Surviving Sepsis Campaign, International Guidelines for Management of Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock 2012 appeared in the February 2013 issues of Critical Care Medicine and Intensive Care Medicine. The guidelines are freely available online and I will of course include the link in the show notes. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a joint collaboration of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine that's committed to reducing mortality from severe sepsis and septic shock worldwide. While there is undoubtedly some debate about aspects of what each edition of the guidelines includes, and you know, with the 2012 guidelines, there has certainly been debate and actually quite recently some amendment to the guidelines with respect to um, the general approach in terms of how we go about approaching septic patients, the need or lack thereof for a, an early goal-directed traditional approach and so on but I'm not going to get into that any further here. Um, so rightly or wrongly, I think a lot of the guidelines do tend to get extrapolated across to the care of veterinary patients. Now, how appropriate it is to do this, I think, varies between individual recommendations in the guidelines. So for some of them, you know, it's really not an issue that we're extrapolating because it makes complete sense in any patient. And then others of the guidelines are guidelines that have been derived entirely from human evidence and, you know, extrapolating those across to veterinary patients, I think is more precarious. So I think whether or not it's legitimate to be extrapolating these guidelines really does uh, depend on the individual guideline in question. But with all of that said, I think in general, it's fair to say that the surviving sepsis campaign has also had some positive knock-on effect in improving the care of septic veterinary patients. Now, there's a lot more I could say about this, but I won't at the moment. However, the reason for bringing the guidelines up is that I wanted to read what they say about the use of steroids. So in the section for adults, they say, we suggest not using intravenous hydrocortisone as a treatment of adult septic shock patients if adequate fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy are able to restore hemodynamic stability. 
If this is not achievable, we suggest intravenous hydrocortisone, and then they go on to state a dose. And they rate this recommendation in adults as grade 2C, which basically means it's a weak recommendation based on low-quality evidence. And in the pediatric section, they say, we suggest timely hydrocortisone therapy in children with fluid refractory catecholamine-resistant shock and suspected or proven absolute classic adrenal insufficiency. And they rate this recommendation in pediatrics as a strong recommendation with high-quality evidence. It's worth remembering that these guidelines were published in 2012 and that the evidence review for those guidelines therefore only covers papers before that time and in fact you know, would have been going on for quite a while before the guidelines were actually published. There have no doubt been further relevant papers published since then and we will see what has changed in the next version of the guidelines. As far as the use of steroids is concerned, though, I think, if anything, the changes will relate more to how they rate the evidence for their recommendations rather than them changing the recommendations themselves. But I guess we'll wait and see. And so basically what they are saying is that if you have a patient with septic shock in whom you cannot adequately improve their hypotension or tissue hypoperfusion with fluid therapy alone, then you should try exogenous catecholamines. And in human medicine, noradrenaline or norepinephrine is the increasingly recommended uh, exogenous catecholamine at this time. If that still does not cause adequate improvement, then add in physiological doses of hydrocortisone. Needless to say, there remains ongoing debate about this, including about the timing of when hydrocortisone should be added in humans with so-called refractory septic shock. So, for example, there is an editorial in Critical Care Medicine 2014, which is entitled Timing of Corticosteroids in Refractory Septic Shock, A Key or Wishful Thinking. And in that editorial, it says, Corticosteroid administration in the refractory critically ill patient with presumed sepsis has shadowed our practices almost since the clinical development of these hormones and the inception of modern critical care. Most, if not all of us, have witnessed a near-miraculous stabilisation of a patient hovering near death's door when a bolus of hydrocortisone, methylprednisolone or dexamethasone has been administered to that patient. Clearly, for the rare individual with primary adrenal failure, brackets Addison's disease, this would be mandatory therapy. But for the wide spectrum of septic patients with suspected adrenal insufficiency, corticoid resistance or other, there is insufficient compelling data to show benefit to a broader use of corticosteroids in septic patients. And then later on in the the editorial, the authors write, Mysteries related to the use of steroids in septic shock remain unsolved. The first and foremost is identifying a test that will help clinicians decide whether to initiate steroids in the first place. Creating such a test is largely complicated by intrinsic changes that occur during septic shock. As the inherent difficulties in developing such a test continue to be investigated, practitioners who use steroids in patients with refractory septic shock may consider using them earlier on after diagnosis. So that's just them throwing into discussion the timing aspect 
compared to what the surviving sepsis guidelines recommend. In a paper from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine in 2012, it says, This concise evidence-based review highlights the strengths and weaknesses of the current data to inform the practicing clinician as to which patients are likely to derive significant benefit from corticosteroid treatment while we await more definitive guidance from future multicenter prospective randomized controlled trials designed to better answer these important therapeutic questions. Or, for example, in a paper from Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2013, it says, The literature on the use of steroids in pediatric shock is limited in amount and methodological quality and demonstrates conflicting results. The limited evidence on which current guidelines are based strongly supports the need for a well-designed, pragmatic, randomized controlled trial on the use of steroids in pediatric shock to inform future guidelines. So all of that reading from papers and all of that debate and discussion leads me very nicely on to finishing the podcast by talking about a clinical practice review article that is entitled Controversies Surrounding Critical Illness-Related Corticosteroid Insufficiency in Animals by Jamie M. Burkett Creedon that was published in the Special Controversies in Critical Care issue of the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care, the 2015 January-February edition. And I will, of course, include the link to this in the show notes. And if anyone would like a copy of this individual paper, then do feel free to get in touch. And the contact information, as always, will be at the end of the podcast and in the show notes. So the paper starts with a bit of a historical context discussing the literature that shows a relationship between altered function of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and mortality in severe sepsis and septic shock in people. And this is the literature that led to the coining of the term relative adrenal insufficiency. The author mentions a famous human study that was published in 2002 by Anan et al. from France that was entitled The Effect of Treatment with Low Doses of Hydrocortisone and Flutocortisone on Mortality in Patients with Septic Shock. And then the author goes on to describe the Corticus study. So that's the Corticus study, which was a larger multicenter international randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled study that was intended to try and answer some of the questions raised by the earlier Anan study and also to try and address some of the critiques that the Anan study faced. The Corticus study set out to investigate the usefulness of the standard ACTH stimulation test and hydrocortisone treatment in people with septic shock. The author goes on to describe some of the findings of the Corticus study and makes the point that these findings were dichotomous to those of the Anan study. And she also makes the point that soon after Corticus was published in 2008, an international task force set up by the American College of Critical Care Medicine replaced the term relative adrenal insufficiency with the term critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, or CIRCI, um, which apparently better reflects the current understanding of corticosteroid insufficiency in critically ill patients. And actually, this uh, raises an interesting point with the renaming. 
which is that although mostly this condition has been investigated and discussed in the context of sepsis, it is a potential consideration in other types of critical illness as well. The author mentions some of the critique of Corticus, and then she writes, The apparently dichotomous results of the French study and Corticus have led to continued controversy over adrenal function testing and the use of glucocorticoids in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. Unfortunately, even less is known and understood about normal and abnormal corticosteroid metabolism and the possible benefit of corticosteroid therapy in critically ill veterinary patients. The purposes of this review are to describe the controversies surrounding Cirque and the use of hydrocortisone in critically ill patients and to present published diagnostic and therapeutic strategies in companion veterinary species. Dr. Burkett then goes on to discuss the etiology of Cirque, saying that the etiology is unknown and that there is almost certainly inter-individual variation in its pathophysiology and more than one mechanism may be present concurrently in the same patient. It is also unknown whether different mechanisms may be at play in different species, as very limited to no data regarding appropriate corticosteroid metabolism are available in veterinary species. What about with respect to the diagnosis of Cirque? How do we make the diagnosis? Well, Dr. Burkett says that the complicated and likely multifactorial nature of Cirque's pathogenesis has led to significant controversy surrounding the best way to identify patients with the syndrome. Baseline cortisol concentration, delta cortisol concentration using standard versus low-dose ACTH stimulation test protocols, endogenous hormone ratios, measurement of total versus free cortisol, response to treatment and other methods have been advocated by various authors as appropriate methods for detecting cortisol insufficiency or resistance in critical illness in people. It is probably more accurate to say that due to disparate data from different studies and resultant clinical equipoise, the human critical care community does not advocate any method of diagnosis for Cirque at present. In a practical sense, the diagnosis of Cirque in people is currently made by evaluating the response to treatment with low-dose hydrocortisone because current guidelines recommend treating pressor-resistant septic shock patients with hydrocortisone without or with no regard to HPA axis assessment. So in other words, putting it crudely, if the patient meets the criteria and then they respond to low-dose hydrocortisone, they're considered to have Cirque. And if they don't respond, they're not considered to have Cirque. And of course, less is known, even less is known about the best way to identify Cirque in critically ill dogs and even less in critically ill cats. And actually, the author also mentions some studies relating to foals in the review article. And so last but definitely not least, what does Dr. Burkett say about treatment? Well, she writes that the dose is referred to as low physiologic stress or replacement, depending on author. Whether this approach is appropriate in horses, dogs and cats is unknown. The required dose for any individual patient, human or veterinary, is unknown, as the precise glucocorticoid deficiency or responsiveness in any critically ill individual cannot be determined. 
meta-analyses confirm that while these lower doses of corticosteroids may confer benefit in people with septic shock, higher doses are not beneficial and may be detrimental. So the author makes the point that there is a lack of consensus about the treatment of Cirque in human medicine and that, as would be expected, the decision to treat is murkier and the treatment methods are more variable in veterinary medicine. Treatment regimens have been published primarily in case reports, in reviews and in book chapters, but with no reliable clinical trial data available in veterinary species. And Dr. Burkett then goes on to describe some of the veterinary material that has been published and I have included all of these references in the show notes. And again, as I mentioned, if you want a copy of Dr. Burkett's paper, do get in touch. <clears throat> so her review article ends with the following paragraph, and I'm just going to read this word for word. It says, Considering the substantial controversy and uncertainty that still surround the syndrome of Cirque, it is fortunate that another large-scale, multi-centre trial investigating the use of hydrocortisone in septic shock is currently underway. This trial began enrollment in February 2013 and aims to include 3,800 people with septic shock. Results of this investigation may significantly influence Cirque identification and management in people. However, because of species differences in endogenous cortisol metabolism and in responsiveness to exogenous steroids, Studies in individual veterinary species will be required to make specific recommendations in companion animals. Until further data becomes available, practitioners will continue to make clinical judgments regarding the diagnosis and treatment of corticosteroid insufficiency in critically ill patients. So that brings me to saying that I have personally used and will continue to use low-dose or physiological steroids in patients in which I feel it is worth trying on the basis that especially at the doses we are talking about, the potential benefit outweighs the low risk. Typically, these would be patients either with sepsis or some other form of critical illness in which achieving and maintaining cardiovascular stability is proving a real challenge, and in particular ones that do not respond adequately to vasopressor use. So that's just my approach at the moment. And as Dr. Burkett says, you know, it's really one of those areas that's um, open to clinical judgment. The other thing I want to acknowledge is that for many of you listening to this podcast, you may not have access to exogenous vasopressor drugs. And so you may need to skip that as part of your criteria for deciding whether you're going to try low dose or physiological steroids. And moreover, you may not have access to hydrocortisone which as you know, read earlier and mentioned before, a lot of the information and the publications are all around the use of hydrocortisone. But if you do not have access to it, then you may need to use a different steroid. And so something like dexamethasone, which has glucocorticoid, but also some mineralocorticoid activity. There's a little bit of published suggestion that using dexamethasone is less preferable and potentially more harmful than using hydrocortisone. But I guess if you are faced with one of these patients and you do not have hydrocortisone, then you should use it as an alternative. Now, look, I'm deliberately not going to mention specific doses in this podcast for what we mean by or what is meant by low dose or physiological. 
because as Dr. Burkett's article shows, there are a few different protocols that have been reported um, or been published. They typically all involve tapering the steroids off once you have elected to start them. But if you want to know more about what kind of doses people have used, then again, get, get in touch and I'm happy to share the information that Dr. Burkett provides with you. Okay, so that brings me to the end of what is quite a long but hopefully interesting episode, and thanks to Charlotte once again for the suggestion. This is one of the more complex and, I guess, cutting-edge episodes that I've done, but I hope that it was laid out in a way that allowed the main points to come across. I know from some of the comments left by some listeners that um, the fact that there are show notes on the website that you can go and refer to and uh, you know that the transcript is also made available are things that people do find helpful because it's difficult to assimilate all of the information presented in an audio format like this, especially with just one person doing the presenting. But essentially the gist of what I was saying was that at the moment, the use of steroids in shock in general is not recommended unless that patient happens to have a steroid-responsive disease as the cause of their shock, which we know is a pretty rare situation. Low-dose or physiological steroids can be used in patients with septic shock that is refractory to fluid resuscitation and to exogenous catecholamine use if you have those available. But there remains much to be clarified about this in terms of which patients are the best candidates, when to start the steroids, what protocol to use, and so on. So again, if you would like a copy of Dr. Burkett's JVEC review article, then hit me up via email at shailenjasani at gmail.com or message me via Twitter at vetmcc, that's vet, E-M-C-C, or send me a message on Facebook at the Veterinary ECC Smalltalk page. I would also really love to hear any thoughts or comments about this episode, about your thoughts of this area, what your clinical practice is, and so on. As always, you can download a transcript of this episode at the website. So the URL here is veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 17. That's veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash 17. And there you will also find all of the references that either informed or were mentioned in this episode, including many of the ones that Dr. Burkett references in her review article. And then lastly, as always, if you haven't already and you can spare some time to rate and review the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would be uh, very grateful. I would also love it if you could share the podcast via your social media channels. It's not something I've mentioned before, but I post about the episodes on Facebook and Twitter, and it would be really cool if you could share those for me. Obviously, these podcasts are a free educational resource, and it would be great to reach as many interested people as possible. And so thanks very much for any of you that take the time to share the podcast as well. The next episode, as always, will be in two weeks' time. And until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Thank you.
Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.